of the fall. I think that's still on the front of your sheet. My sheet looks different than yours because I had to make more space for, for my notes. Um, so consequences of the fall. Um, before we jump in, let's have a word of prayer this morning. Father, we are so thankful for your word. And um, as we talk about sin today, we, we recognize right off the bat this morning that, that we live in a sin-cursed world. And often it's easy for us as believers to look at all the sin around us and, and blame it on all the sinners around us and all the curse that's around us and forget that we too, we too, were, were born as, as um, those who did not seek after God, as those who have no goodness at all in us. And, and it's only through a work of, of Christ in our hearts that, that we have salvation, that, that we can know victory over sin. And so I pray that, that our study this morning would be profitable, that it would be fruitful for us in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so as we look at Genesis chapter 3 real quick this morning, I want you to see the, just the initial, because I think there is something in, in, the, in this law of first mentions, if you will, in the scripture, but I want you to see um, the personal consequences of sin immediately, immediately. Um, and, and then we're going to talk about the impact on relationships and, and move forward from there. But, but in Genesis chapter 3, so immediately in verse 6, after, after Eve eats, gives to her husband, verse 7, then the eyes of both were opened. The eyes of both were opened. Um, stop and consider what that means, that the eyes of both were opened. What do, what do you surmise that that means? It's not like they were blind before this. What, what, what is Moses under inspiration here writing? What's he trying to convey? What's the idea that he's trying to convey to us there? Because we can't really understand this without going any further. Yeah, it, open to what? what? What is it now that they see? Yeah, they see good and evil. Yeah, they, they, now, they now experience something that they hadn't experienced before up to this point, okay? They, they now understand that, that all the perfection that's around them can be easily and, and tragically totally marred and scarred now, don't they? They can see this. And so their eyes are open, and, and, and one, the, first, the first result of their eyes being opened is, is there's a self-awareness there. And what's the self-awareness? Had they been naked up to that point? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They had been naked up to that point. What's the difference now? Yeah. But there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a something new here. Okay? Shame. There's shame. Shame has been introduced now. And, and to me, it's one of the very first personal consequences that we see according to, in, in the fall is there's now personal shame. Okay? There's, there's personal shame. They feel it. They feel the weight of what they've done, and they feel guilt. And guilt and shame usually go hand in hand. Guilt and shame usually go hand in hand, where, where you feel guilty unless, unless you've gotten to the point where you're so, so seared in your conscience, they're usually ashamed with that, right? And so, so now we have guilt and we have shame, and then 
we have a, 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 new, a new phenomenon starting in verse 12, and that is that, that now we start to blame others, which points out the damage that's done to relationships immediately. You see it in verse 12? So, so God, God comes and asks, Adam, who told you you were naked? Who, who told you? Verse 11, who told you you were naked? And, and because, because of that question, he immediately follows up with a second question. Um, have you eaten of the tree I told you not to eat of? Because that's the only way that you would know this. Now, is God asking this to get information or is God asking this to, to work in man's heart? And I think we learned an important lesson about God here, too. Does God know already what man's done? Yeah. So why is he asking the questions the way he's asking the questions? Mm, I think God's using the things that are already, he's using the guilt and shame, and he's, he's literally pressing on that, isn't he? God is pressing on that guilt and shame. Um, the same way that, that a doctor, whenever you would go in and complaining of a pain, what does the doctor do? Normally he goes right to where you say the pain is, and what does he do? Or she. They, they probe to see just how bad the hurt is, right? Okay. God's doing that for, for man's good. And, and so under these personal consequences, and there's more that we could talk about, I just wanted to point out these initial ones. We have this great impact on relationship. Um, I, need a couple, I need some help with some verses here. So if someone could go to Romans chapter 5 and verse 10, Ephesians 4 and verse 18, um, Romans 1 and verse 18, uh, Ephesians 5 and verse 16, and Matthew 25 and verse 46. Um, some help with some verses here. So there, there's a great impact now on relationships, and the first great impact on relationships is the relationship with God himself is severed. Romans 5, verse 10. Romans 5, verse 10. What does Paul call us at the beginning of the verse? While we were what? Enemies. Okay? Up to this point, what, what was the relationship between man and, and God? It was almost like a friendship, right? Right? And now, immediately, we're, we, are, we are enemies. Okay? Um, Ephesians 4, verse 18. darkened, alienated, cut off. There, there's, there's, when you're alienated, is there any point of commonality and agreement? No. So you're alienated, you're totally cut off, and, and as a result of that, Romans 1 verse 18 says what? What's the result of, of this of this severing of the relationship. It, it brings consequences, which, which are what, according to Romans 1.18? The wrath of God. So you got, are you there? Read it for us, Aaron, please. Okay. Let that sink in. I think in our highly sensitized, very cleaned up, 
view of the scriptures, we don't have an accurate understanding of the wrath of God. Give me some biblical examples of the wrath of God, starting Old Testament. The flood? Okay, was that, was that worldwide? Yeah. Yeah, was it, was it, was it devastating? Yeah. Was, did it last a long time? Do you think it made an impression on those who survived it? It did, but how, how quickly were they to, to fall back into sin? Okay, give me some other Old Testament examples of the wrath of God. Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay, and, and God, God is patient with Abraham, remember? And Abraham keeps praying and interceding. If I can find 50, if I can find, and he just keeps working down. God's, yeah, yeah, if you can find, if you can find. And, and, and ultimately, what? There's lot, right? Okay, what are, give me one more example of Old Testament wrath of God. Plagues on Egypt. Yeah, it's pretty devastating when you come in and wipe out the firstborn, right? Okay, so, so when we talk about wrath of God, it, then the wrath of God, according to Romans chapter 1 and verse 18, is on what? And on who, Aaron? On all, all ungodliness and righteousness. Now, give me some New Testament examples of the wrath of God. Ananias and Sapphira. That's a good one. They lie to the Holy Spirit and what? Boom. Any more? Have you read Revelation? What's, what's going to happen in Revelation? Literally, systematically, God's pouring out his wrath on the earth, is he not? He, he is systematically pouring out his wrath on the earth. I, I remember having a conversation with a gentleman a couple years ago who said, I don't like the Old Testament view of God because God is always pictured as so angry and so upset with people. I said, then you haven't read the complete New Testament yet. Read the very end of the New Testament and you'll find a God that's even angrier than in the Old Testament and pouring out his wrath. So, so with that in mind, he pours out his wrath. <clears throat> um, Matthew 25 and verse 46. Did someone look that one up? <clears throat> So, so the, the ultimate end of, of punishment is it's eternal punishment for sin, okay? So there's a big impact on relationships, but it's not just the relationship with God. It affects relationships with people. According to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 16, now the woman's going to have pain in childbearing, and her desire is going to be for her husband's, her husband's role in the marriage. Does that going to affect relationships? Yeah, sin is going to affect our earthly relationships as well. Every time a woman has a baby, yes, it's a sweet, tender moment, but there's also this sense of, man, I wish you could feel this pain, sir. Okay? It affects marriages. You don't have to go too far into the, into the Genesis account, and in Genesis chapter 4 and verse 8, what do you find? You find Cain and Abel, and what's going on there? One, one doesn't like the offering that the other one brings, and so what does he do? Just kills him. Just kills him. Did anybody have to teach Cain that that's how you deal with your problems? So, so understand this. The very first two sons that are a product of the Adam and Eve's marriage, one of the two has enough anger and, and, and resentment in his heart that he can kill the other one. 
Should we be surprised that, that things are only getting worse in our world whenever it starts off that way? Okay, so relationships are affected. The relationship between man and the earth is affected too. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 17, he finds out now, hey, because of what you've done, Adam, guess what? The earth's working against you. Do you see it there? He says, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. There were no such thing as blisters before the fall. Right? Okay. He said, verse 18, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Which leads us then into the consequences of the fall are, are death. Okay? And so when we see death in Scripture, there, there's really three ways to look at death. I've given them there to you. Spiritual, physical, and eternal. Okay? Did Adam physically die immediately when he sinned? No, but God promised that it would bring death, did he not? So, so what happens to Adam? How does he die? Well, I think we get a clue in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1. We get more than a clue. We get an understanding. Ephesians 2 and verse 1 says what? You were what? You were dead in your trespasses and sin. Okay? Um, Somebody look up for me 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 4. I think that's the one I want there. 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 4. You got it. Go ahead and read it. Okay. Not only are they just spiritually dead, but they are blinded to the fact that they're dead. You ever had conversations with unbelievers who, who have no concept of the fact of just how lost they are? Why is that? Why is that? They're actively being blinded to this. Okay? So their spiritual death... And then there's physical death. I just read in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 19, dust to dust, you're going to return. Hebrews 9, 27 says what? It's appointed unto man what? Once to die and then the judgment. Okay, that's a physical death. Okay. Then there's also eternal death. Revelation chapter 20 and verse 6. Revelation 20 and verse 6. John writes there and he says, the second death won't have power over them. What's he mean by second death? What's he referring to? There's a first death, which none of us in this room have experienced. Right? There's a first physical death that we haven't experienced. We've experienced spiritual death because we're born into spiritual death. We're going to talk about that in just a second. But, but what's the second death? Yeah. The Bible records that death and hell are taken. Death and hell. The Bible, John records it very carefully. Death and hell are taken and they're thrown where? Into the lake of fire. Okay? 
And, and, and I see that as second death. That's, that's, that's it. That's the eternal separation from God. There's no hope at that point. None. There wasn't hope anyway if you were already there. But, but there's, there's absolutely no hope, right? So death and hell are cast, okay? So let's talk about... Any questions or thoughts on that before I go? I don't want to move too fast, but let's talk about original sin, okay? When you look at a newborn, is it hard for you to fathom that they are a total pagan rebel against God? They're so lovable and cute, right? And they all look like Winston Churchill. That newborn baby... And we've had, we've, had a, we've had a healthy crop of them here in our church. Those newborn babies, what is their spiritual state? They're dead in sin. You agree with that statement? They're dead in their sins, okay? Do we have biblical proof for that? Yeah, I think we do. Let's go to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. And, and, and let's think about this. Can dead things be reformed? Can dead things be remade? Can dead things be remodeled? Or do dead things have to be revived and brought back to life? There's a difference. But, but one, of the, one of our misunderstandings of the doctrine of sin is, is that if we're not careful, even using Scripture, we can present salvation as just a reform that needs to happen for somebody. Salvation is not a reform. It's a rebirth. And we have to be careful with that. People don't need just a little cleaning up. They don't need a little whitewash on the outside. They don't need a little, you know, confession of a couple bad sins that they do and, and just a little bit of reform. We all need to be totally reborn. Totally reborn. And, and, and the reason why is because of original sin. Romans chapter 5, I had you turn there. Verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to how many? All. That includes newborn babies? Yeah, it does. Death spreads to all, okay? We talk about this word imputation and how Christ's righteousness is imputed to our account there's also a, a negative side of imputation, if you will. Adam's sin is imputed to us all. It, it comes on all of us. You say, well, that's not fair. I wasn't there. I would have done differently. Ha, ha, ha. Um, no. Adam's sin is imputed to us all. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 22. I'll just read it for you. Paul there writing says this, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Okay? So, so understand this, that because of Adam's sin, that sin is put on all of us. If you're still in Romans chapter 5, go down to verses 18 and 19. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, what's the trespass? What's the trespass that Paul's referring here to? Adam's sin. Okay? Because of Adam's sin, Okay, 
So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as, verse 19, for as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now be careful there in your understanding of that scripture. God is not saying to us that the many will be made sinners. He's saying that there's some who won't. That's not what the original language indicates there at all. And he's not also saying that all will be saved. Okay, so, so the English language there and the way it gets interpreted kind of gets a little fuzzy. Okay, so Adam's sin is imputed to all. It's put on all. We can understand this with some New Testament language of old self and new self. Somebody do me a favor and look up Ephesians chapter 4, verses 20 through, 22 through 24, and somebody look up Colossians chapter 3, verses 9 and 10, and somebody look up 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 17. Please. How many of you, as people are turning here, how many of you heard the struggle of the Christian life portrayed this way? I, I remember as a young child, heard it, I heard it from the pulpit being portrayed this way. And, it, and it's, they said, this is an old guy preaching, he said, the Christian life in the heart of man is like, is like a porch where there's two dogs sitting there. There's the old junkyard dog and there's the new dog. And which dog I feed the most is the dog that's going to, is going to rule my heart. Ever heard anything like that, similar to that? It's a misaccurate representation of what happens within a human heart. Okay? Okay, for the believer... We wrestle against the old man, we wrestle against the flesh, but the old man has to die so that a new man can come, okay? We talk about an old self and a new self. Paul in Ephesians 4, somebody have it, verses 22 through 24, what does Paul say there? Go ahead, Dave. Okay, when you read that, it makes it sound like it's all my self-effort, right? I gotta put off and I gotta put on. But for me to be able to put off, what has had to taken place in my heart? I, I'm gonna have to be made new in Christ so that I can put off the deeds of the old flesh, right? Okay, so, so we're getting down the nitty-gritty of our understanding of sin here, okay? We're not saying that once you're in Christ that you're never going to sin, that you're never going to feel temptation. No, you are. Because you have, the, you have the body of flesh still. You have that flesh. But that old man that Paul refers to, that old self, think of it this way. It's connected to Adam. It's connected to Adam. That, that's, that's Adam's influence as, 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 as our earthly father, if you will, our earthly ancestor. Colossians chapter 3, verses 9 and 10 say what? Okay, so old man connected to Adam, new man connected to who? Christ, okay? Christ, the second Adam. The Bible refers to him as the better Adam, okay? The perfect Adam, okay? And so, 
And so now we're either in Adam or we're in Christ. What determines where we are? 2 Corinthians 5, 17. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Okay. Anyone in Christ is a new creation. Okay. In the same way, think of it in this way. Adam had to be created by God, did he not? Adam had to be created by God in Christ. Yes, you didn't get a brand new body when you got saved. You didn't get, you know, you didn't get brand new cells and, and a head full of hair that's replacing your balding head. No, none of that happened. But in Christ, you're a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Okay? That Paul, Paul here is clear on that. So we're either in Adam or we're in Christ. And every day in your family, in the world around you, your neighbors, at your workplace, you're either dealing with people who are in Adam who are in Christ. Okay? Those who are in Adam, let's understand. What, what, let's understand the depth of, of who they are and the depth of who we were. And so I put there, is man totally depraved? Is man totally depraved? And I, this is an important conversation because I already alluded to this earlier as we began. There's this idea, and in, in even, in, even in churches that would, would stand, and pastors who would stand in front of you and open a Bible, there is this, this wrong doctrine that is being spread that really all we need is reform. That all we need is reform. All we need is to add Jesus into the mix and that's going to solve our problems. Is that a problem? Why is that a problem? Okay. But, but it sounds good to just add Jesus into the mix, right? Exactly. So let's understand how bad the wood is. Let's look at the rot in the wood, okay? Um, home inspectors are called to, you know, when you're buying a house, they're to come out and they're to look around, and sometimes they find things that, that you never knew were there in your house. And, and one of the things that, that they can find is this rotting wood. I like that, that illustration. Let's just see how bad the rot is. So I'm going to need some help with some verses here. Titus 1 and verse 15, Jeremiah 17, 9, Romans 8, 7 and 8, and all of us can turn to Romans chapter 3. And then um, 1 Kings 8.46 and Psalm 14.3. Let me give this to you again. Titus 1 and verse 15, Jeremiah 17.9, Romans 8, 7 and 8. All of us turn to Romans chapter 3. And then 1 Kings chapter 8 verse 46 and Psalm 14 verse 3. So, so what does it mean to be totally depraved when we talk about man being totally depraved or the total depravity of man? What, what are we saying there? Well, number one, he is completely corrupt and sinful. Okay, that's the first point of this. Man is completely corrupt and sinful. Titus 1 verse 15 says what? Okay, to the pure, everything's pure. To the what? Say that again really loud. Nothing is pure. Nothing is pure. 
okay? So, so there, there's no, there's no, there's nothing that's, that's redeemable. There's nothing that's good. There's nothing that God can say, well, there's 40% of this, like, like if you were going to rebuild your engine, there's like part of this I can take and work with. Is there anything God can take and work with with a person who's born into Adam's line? No. Okay? He's completely corrupt. Uh, Jeremiah 17, verse 9. This is a familiar one. You've heard this one. You've probably quoted this one. The heart is deceitful above all things. Okay, so is that just a few individuals' hearts or is that all hearts? Okay, let's understand. All hearts are deceitful, desperately wicked. Okay, so completely corrupt. So that's the first part of being, if we, if we want to talk about it this way, that's the first point of being totally depraved. The second point is, not only are we corrupt, but we're unable to please God. And this is so important for us to understand because, because under the way that, that the gospel is presented today, it's like, man, if you just would pray this prayer and try a little harder, you will make God happy. Can you please God when you are totally depraved? No. Romans chapter 8, verses 7 and 8. Someone get that for me? Go ahead, Ashley. Paul's pretty clear there. In the flesh would be another way of saying, still, still in Adam's race, okay? Still, still being in Adam, okay? So you're in the flesh, it's hostile to God, and it cannot please God, okay? Jer or, uh, Romans, I wanted you all to turn to Romans chapter 3. So in Romans chapter 3, Paul here is, is, is if you will, working his way to a, to a very logical conclusion. And one of the things that he has to bring to bear on the, on the people there in Rome is, is that, that none of them there in Rome, none of us in Johnstown, are righteous at all. And so in verse 10 he says, he's going to quote scripture, as it is written, none is righteous, no not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God. Now, i got to stop there. How many of you heard testimonies, and maybe you, you yourself, your testimony is, you know, all of a sudden I had this, this, this understanding that I, that I was sinful and that I needed God, and, I, and I, I started going to church, or I picked up a Bible and I did that, and you've heard people say, you know, I, I started seeking after God. You ever heard anything like that? So how does that fly with this verse here in verse 11, no one seeks after God? Can those two ideas be both truth? I would say yes. No one in and of themselves will seek after God. No one in and of themselves will seek after God. What has to happen for a person to seek after God? The Holy Spirit has to come to work in a person's heart, right? And, and that specifically is the work of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit the Spirit convicts of sin and righteousness and judgment to come. That's the work of the Spirit, okay? Don't confuse that with a work that you do. If you make that a work you do, guess what? It's not going to please God. So, so here's what God does. He, he, he puts it in our hearts. 
through the Holy Spirit. But keep, keep reading here, verse 12. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. What about, what about the people, though, in the world today that are doing good, that are, that are like saving lives, that are, that are being greatly generous with their money, and, and, and it's being used for good? God looks at that, and he says it's no good? Does he? Yes. Why? Okay. Yeah, for one thing, God's definition of good and our definition of good are two different things. Okay? You say, but man, Bill Gates is like just donating money hand over fist. Yeah, he is. There's people who are, you know, that are, that are, that are just, you know, making themselves poor so that they can take care of others. And you have to ask yourself then, what does that mean? Well, the Bible says all of our righteousness, all of our goodness amounts to what? Filthy rags. We won't go into what filthy rags means, but if you want an interesting study, study what filthy rags means. That's what, that's what the Bible says. For an unregenerate man, his good works, yet Ephesians 2.10 says that we were created for what? Somebody look it up. Ephesians 2.10 says we're created for what? Okay. Yet God made us, he designed us to be people who do good works. It's a cart and horse thing, isn't it? All the good works while you're in Adam amount to nothing, but in Christ, your good works matter. Okay? So man is unable to please God. So, number one, under depraved, he's completely corrupt. Secondly, he's totally unable to please God. And thirdly, this is universal. We're all born this way. We're all born this way. 1 Kings 8.46. 1 Kings 8.46. I've really got to get moving. First Kings 8, there is no one who doesn't sin. Psalm 14, verse 3. Psalm 14, verse 3. Okay, it's universal. It's universal. Okay? So, let's talk about some questions regarding sin. And these are some of the big ones that, that you might face. And I wanted, I wanted to kind of to give you some, these are big ones that, that, that get raised, and, and I want to arm you with some answers. So under that first one, I'm just going to give you a disclaimer. I'm going to answer that first one more in depth because it just so happens that we're at that text in Luke chapter 12 this morning, okay? Are some sins worse than others, yes or no? Why do you say no? All sin is a sin. Does God treat all sin the same? Does God treat all sin the same? Why? Why do you say no? 
We're going to look at it. We're going to look at a couple right now. So, so all sin, there's, there's truth in Sherry's answer. All sin makes us guilty before God, correct? So, so in a sense, so in a sense, some sins aren't worse than other sins because all sin, it doesn't matter if you're an axe murderer or if you just tell white lies, right? Okay, that's sin, right? It violates God's holiness, okay? So, and all sin is worthy of eternal punishment, correct? Right, so in that sense, yet, Scripture indicates that some are considered greater. I want to look at it, I'm going to give you quickly a couple verses. Ezekiel 8, verse 13, John 19, 11, um, and let's see here, what else do I want to give you? Matthew 11, verses 20 through 24. The other one is Luke chapter 12, verses 47 to 48. And like I said, I'm going to preach on that this morning. And I'm going to bring that to bear there. But Ezekiel 8, verse 13 says what? You will see still, God says, greater abominations. He puts a qualifier on that. It's not just more. The idea of greater there is, is a level of intensity worse. So God sees that there are some who are committing even greater abominations. For instance, an abortion doctor. Is that a different abomination in God's eyes than somebody like even Cain and Abel who gets mad and in a fit of anger kills somebody? Is it? A guy who knowingly just murders babies over and over? Is that a greater abomination? Yeah. It is. It is. John 19, verse 11. He who delivered me over to you has the what? What does he say? So in Jesus' eyes, what is he saying? There are levels of sin here, are there not? There, there are sins that are greater than others, okay? Matthew 11, verses 20 through 24. Do you hear what Jesus is saying there? He's saying that for some of these cities where Jesus went and worked his miracles, Tyre and Sidon were Old Testament cities that were considered to be like the worst, right? And he's saying it's more, on the day of judgment, Tyre and Sidon are going to fare better than you will, Chorazin and Bethsaida. Because God came and appeared in your town. <laughs> I was there in the flesh, and, and you rejected me, Okay? So, so in a sense, yes, all sin brings guilt before God. But in a sense, there are some sins that are more serious. Yes. Is it a, do you think, uh, kind of like a different view 
That's another good example. Be, not many should be teachers. That's James what? Is that James 3.1? 4.1. Yeah, they'll face a stricter judgment. Okay? God does indicate to us in the scriptures that there are some sins that are going to bring harsher penalty. Okay? Remember the one who would rebuke a little one from coming to Christ? What did he say should happen to that person? A millstone hung around their neck. Okay? So, and in our text today, I'll just give you a hint. In Luke chapter 12, there are three, there are three classes of unfaithful servant. The first one gets hacked to pieces. <laughs> okay? In, in our text today. The second one receives very strict punishment. The third one receives less strict punishment. That's Jesus' words. Okay? So, I want to keep moving here because I want to wrap up here. What is the unpardonable sin? Let's get the, let's get the text for it first. Matthew chapter 12. Let's, go, let's all go to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12, verse 31. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, and whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. Pastor Andy just preached on this in Luke a couple, not too long ago, will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come, okay? There is a sin you commit that cannot be forgiven. What is it? Blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Okay, so, so how many, okay, do, do Pastor Andy a, a solid here. How many remember when he preached on this, what he said this is? <laughs> he's like, he's ducking. What is it, Aaron? I think I might have been right. Uh, Yeah, and that's, that's part of it. Was he right there? Did you do okay there? Yeah, yeah. But, but to blaspheme the Holy Spirit then, would, I would call it a willful rejection of the Holy Spirit. It's, it's, it, it's, a, it's an unrepentant rejection. Correct. Right. Yes. Right. Correct. Yeah. Yes. Okay, so when somebody tries to tell you there is no such thing as an unpardonable sin, that's not true. The scripture says there is, okay? Go with me to 1 John chapter 5 and verse 16. 1 John chapter 5 and verse 16. 
John, at the end of this letter, seems to throw this thing in there, and I don't have time to unpack the context of the whole thing for us, but he says, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is a sin that leads to death, and I do not say that one should pray for that. This is a question that gets thrown at that, that people sometimes too, especially people trying to poke holes in the scripture. So what is this sin that leads to death? I'm going to give you two prevailing views of thought on this and let you think on it. There's two prevailing views of thought on this. One, it, that the person who, but he, that says this, and I, I, I don't agree with this one, but it's a prevailing view of thought. I found it in a lot of good guys who I have a lot of respect for. But to me, the thing that, that clues me in is if anyone sees his brother. He's talking about a believer here. But there are some who take this text and say, okay, the sin that leads to death is always for an, not an authentic believer. It's someone who appears to be a believer. Okay, they would apply that possibly to Ananias and Sapphira. Lying to the Holy Spirit, they really truly weren't genuine believers. I don't know if that's the case or not, but I can find more scriptural evidence for, for the second, that it is a believer, and it's not a particular sin, but it's, but it's a serious enough that sin that requires drastic correction. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 Kind of, kind of clues us into this. First Corinthians chapter 11, in the taking of, the, of communion, the Lord's Supper. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and some of you have what? Died. Some of you had died. Saying, abuse of the Lord's table. And what was going on with Corinth was pretty abusive. They were, they were totally, they would turn that thing into a, into a drunken fest. Okay? So those are the two things. I want to get to this last one. Any questions on that? I want to get to this last one because this is the big one that you get faced with and that I get faced with. But any questions on the sin leading to death? All right. So you get this question that's posed. If God is good and sovereign, and how many of you agree that God is good and that God is sovereign? Okay. If God is good and sovereign, why do evil and suffering and sin exist in the world? And for most of us, when that question is raised, we're like, you should go talk to my pastor. Okay. So, let me give you a verse to just begin with in the thinking process here because this question and the way it's worded does something that should not be done immediately in that it puts God on trial. This question puts God on trial. And that's, that's, that's never the right way to go with this. And, and honestly, I wouldn't expect an unregenerate person to understand this, but this is where you and I have to begin as those who are believers. We never put God on trial. Romans chapter 9 and verse 20 says this, But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Don't get baited into the trap of putting God on trial. Okay? Don't get baited into that trap. God is sovereign, and he does what he pleases. Okay? If Romans 9 says that very clearly. He is sovereign, and he does what he pleases. Okay? Go back. We've talked now for two weeks about the creation account. 
at the end of creation, how did God describe creation? Very good, right? Okay, very good. And in that process on day six, did he not spell out to Adam explicitly what, what if you want to just put it in simplistic terms, what the rules were? Did he make it clear to Adam what the rules were? And what did Adam do? Out of his own volition, his own will, he chose, right? He chose. So is God on trial or is Adam on trial? It's Adam who's on trial. Adam willfully displayed. So yes, you're right, Rick. We, we choose this. We choose this. And, and the reason that I wanted to bring to bear today this whole thing about we're either in Adam or in Christ, those who are in Adam do exactly what Adam does. They choose. They choose that. Even those of us in Christ who are battling with the flesh, we at times make wrong choices. Okay? But it's an act of the will. But even as far back as Genesis chapter 3, God gives us hope. And I want to just bring this verse back to bear. Go back to Genesis chapter 3. It's, it's barely minutes after this sin is committed, probably. God comes looking. God comes looking for Adam in the garden, remember? Okay? And, and then he starts to hand out these curses. And in the middle of handing out curses, he hands out a curse to the Satan and, and, and the serpent. In verse 15, he puts hope. If you mark in your Bible, this is a verse that you should mark. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. This is the first statement of the gospel. This is it. There's a Latin term for that, proto-evangelum. It's, it's the first statement of the gospel. I will put enmity between you and the woman. He's talking to the serpent. The serpent is personifying who? Satan. This is, this is God addressing Satan in the garden. I'm going I'm to put this total enmity, this, 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 if you will, conflict between you and between your offspring and her offspring. Okay? So who's the offspring of the woman? Well, it's... Cain and Abel, and you keep following all the way through, right? And, and, and the, whole, the whole New Testament, the whole thread of the New Testament is preparing us for the Gospels, and who comes on the scene in the Gospels? Christ. This is the seed of the woman that, that, that God is referring to, okay? And, and, and all through the Old Testament, you have the seed of Satan, Okay, and it's any human being, is it not? <laughs> you have the seed of Satan, okay? And there's this ongoing conflict, and here's what God announces at the end of verse 15. This is where the gospel is. He will crush. Most of your English Bibles say bruise, but it's crush. When you crush the head of the serpent, what do you do? You, 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 that's it, it's over, right? He will crush your head, and you will what? You'll bruise his heel. When was that fulfilled? It was fulfilled on the cross. Did, did Satan get a sting in on Jesus' heel? Yeah, he did. Did Satan totally crush the serpent's head? Yeah. Yeah. 
And so let's understand this. All wrongs will be made right in God's plan. Don't believe me? Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. All wrongs will be made right. And this is where the world doesn't understand this because the world doesn't see themselves in the wrong. The person who's suffering at the hands of another person that they think they don't deserve it, they don't understand that, that none of us deserves any goodness. None of us deserves anything good to happen to us. We're all sinners. We all deserve condemnation. We all deserve punishment. We all deserve pain. And, and it's wrong for us to assume that the person in the world automatically gets that. They're not going to get that because they don't think spiritually. The natural man doesn't think spiritually. But notice how God makes all the wrongs right. Verse 55 of 1 Corinthians 15. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's a victory that we can have now in this life, but it's an ultimate victory when we're in his presence. So there is hope. And so when someone brings this question to you, don't be afraid of this question. Let me just give you some advice on how to deal with this question. One, acknowledge that there is a lot of what seems to be unfairness in the world. Is there not? There seems to be a lot of unfairness in the world. You know, bad things do happen to good people. But let's understand this. In the eyes of God, none of us are good. And we have to bring that to bear. And because we live in a, in a world that is totally wrecked by sin, I'm not going to use the word flawed, totally wrecked by sin, this world is totally wrecked by sin. We are going to experience pain and loss and suffering. And so this was a choice that was made a long time ago. And God can still be good and sovereign through all of that. And you see the goodness and the sovereign, sovereignty of God in this in that God's already worked out the solution. God's already got this solved. So we're going to wrap up there. So next week I'm handing off to somebody else and we're going to start talking about the doctrine of salvation. We're all set up. We've talked about man and man's state. We've talked about sin. Now we get to the solutions now in our understanding of biblical doctrine. So the doctrine of soteriology beginning next week. All right, let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you again for your word and how it applies to our living. And it just opens our eyes to, to, to see our own sinfulness and it opens our eyes to see just the immensity of your grace that you've given to us and the mercy and that you haven't given us the judgment that we so rightly deserve. So, Father, we thank you for your mercy and grace. And I pray that, that even through this study, we would be motivated to be, to be conduits or, if you will, just, just messengers of, of your grace and mercy to the world around us. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.